You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister, and this is the first annual holiday episode of the podcast. I hope everyone listening, wherever you are, is having an excellent holiday season so far. And when I think about Christmas, or any holiday really, to me, it's about people. So what better topic to cover in this episode than to talk about people, the government workforce? 2020 has been a year that really shined a light on some of the issues happening in the workforce. And I think most people will agree, government needs to become a better place to work. The reports have been consistent for years. The vacancies are high. The workforce is aging. New hire turnover is high. And morale is going down dramatically. The most terrifying evidence in all of that is too many recent hires, and those are the future of the government, are resigning within months. All the hours that agencies have invested in bringing them on board are lost. It's imperative that agencies commit to making needed changes. We're definitely going to touch on this today. And all of this is happening at a time when fewer graduates are choosing government jobs. A recent study conducted by The Hill found students pursuing master's degrees in public policy are no longer pursuing government jobs, especially at the federal level. So what can be done? Today's guests are going to help us with that, and you didn't hear me wrong. I said guests, plural. It's a three-person show today. Joining us is Chris Trailer, the Director of Government Solutions at a human capital management company, Avature, and Tom Chapin, a business value consultant for the public sector at OpenText. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having us. So before we jump into the, the conversation of workforce, um, one of the things I did want to touch on, because this is, in fact, the first annual holiday episode of the podcast um, is yeah exactly some of our favorite Christmas movies I listed mine out on social media um, and got some good responses back and and made me think a little bit my top three um, in case you guys didn't see it number one is definitely elf for me I I love elf it's not Christmas if I can't watch elf Um, but Christmas vacation came in number two and then just a, a classic a Christmas story which is apparently polarizing i didn't realize that the number of people that either love or hate a christmas story um chris you you chimed in what what are your top three yeah and it's it's funny you bring up a christmas story because i always feel guilty whenever someone asks me what your top christmas movies are and and christmas story is not in mine personally um i wouldn't say i hate the movie it just i don't think it resonates with me well um i'm a big number one for me is Christmas Vacation. I think that should be everyone's number one. The classic, yeah. Um, number two was Home Alone, and number three was Elf for me. Uh, I think, to be honest, you could go any three of those movies in any order, and, and I'm not going to challenge you on it, though. Well, I got a lot of pushback on Home Alone, actually, what that Home Alone needed, because there were a lot of people that commented saying Home Alone needed to be in the top three. So I think that's fair. The other the other conversation that... I, and 
to me, this is kind of an annual conversation, right? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Tom, what do you think? Uh, no, it's just set in Christmas. So, so how did it get to be a Christmas movie? It's crazy. See, for, Unless you're for, watching people get blown up and like... It's for just me, Die Hard's a Christmas movie. One. It's just whether or not it's in the top three. It's definitely yeah. a Christmas movie. <laughs> Tom, what, yeah. what, are your, what are your top three? So I can't, we're going to go on the way back machine here. So Frosty the Snowman uh, and the abdominal, abdom <laughs> I was going to say, abominable snowman, hard word to say. Um, uh, then also the Charlie Brown Christmas, number two, and then Christmas on 34th Street. Uh, I know oh, that's, on 34th Street. Broad, that's a good one. Yeah, whatever it was. It was uh, the, the Macy's versus Gimbel's one, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is very the appropriate Coles. now. The, yeah, the 90s one was Kohl's. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, those are, I'm kind of old fashioned being the boomer that I am, but that'll be subject uh, later on in the podcast. We can talk well, about I, that. I was going to say that that's a perfect segue, Tom. So one of the things that we go into this and I, I'd be remiss to say, by the way, Miracle on 30, 34th Street's a great one. So good. Including yeah. that, um, is the, the changing demographics of the, the government workforce. And this, is obviously prevalent in the United States, but I think this is something that that bears comment globally across government. Um, just the different generations that are entering government and what their expectations are and how that's really driving um, changes within government. Uh, you have a great narrative on that, Tom. Um, if you want yeah, to mention I, I do, I do, and it's uh, it's it's uh, very powerful when you start thinking about it. So this is a 2010 Pew Research poll, and they asked 1,200 Americans this question: What makes your generation unique? And uh, so they lined up the different generations. They had baby boomers, uh, those born between 1945, 1964. Remember, these are kind of fluid. The Gen Xers, uh, 1961 to 1981. And then the infamous millennials, uh, 1975 to 1991. It's been interesting. You know, there's uh, ones after that, but the millennials themselves are getting kind of old. Anyway, the boomers, their number one thing that they said that made their generation unique, 17% of them said their work ethic. And their work ethic probably came out of their parents that had survived the depression. And, you know, by God, if you're going to sit on the couch and watch television, that's just not, uh, that's not you know, good behavior. Get lazy, get up, get working. Sorry, things, um, you know, are hard or difficult, but get going. And um, uh, funny enough, at the at the bottom there, or their, their number five, five uh, response was that they're smarter. They're smarter than the other generations. So then you move forward to the Gen Xers. And work ethic moved to number two, 11% said their work ethic, but number one for Gen Xers said their technology use made their generation unique. And 6% and, uh, of them also thought they were smarter. And now you went to the millennials and gosh darn it, what happened to the old work ethic? It's not even on the list. 17% of them said their technology use. Uh, they also said their music and pop culture as well as their clothes. And uh, uh, they also thought they were smarter. So the, the thing that was fascinating was that early on, boomers, myself included, when things got difficult, you just kind of plowed your way through it. You got to get it done. Sorry, it's not fun. Sorry, it's difficult. But over time, over the past pretty much you know, 20, 30 years, technology use has, um, has increased to the point where it's maybe taken away a lot of that pain. And so it doesn't have to, you don't have to have a really uh, great work ethic to get along in life. Uh, but it just kind of changed the game substantially. And, and Brian, you know, I, you and I have actually, I'm probably about a, as old as your dad is, which is kind of scary. But it's really interesting to see how people perceive the world around them differently. 
Um, and, you know, it remains to be seen if it's good or bad. Um, but it's important to talk about because the workforce is fundamentally different than it was and there have different expectations. And when did you ever think that how you ordered Starbucks online would begin to impact your work environment? But it's really about customer experience, first impressions. And um, so, I mean, it's just fascinating. And it, Yeah, and it I, I completely so. agree. And I know one of the things that, uh, Chris, you're going to touch on is kind of agency brand. But the big thing for me, you look at kind of the employee experience and what um, and, and that's culture, but that's also the type of technology that they're leveraging. So you look at the expectations that are being driven by this next generation workforce, whether it's millennials, whether it's Generation Z and and so on and so forth. The expectation, um, to Tom's point, isn't that I'm going to work harder, per se, not not that not that those generations are uh, <laughs> would shy away from hard work, but they look at it and say, let's work smarter. Let's get yeah. more done. Uh, without having to roll up our sleeves, we can actually be smarter and more efficient. So it really becomes a conversation of, am I going to go work there if if I can't work smarter? Yeah, or stupid. They have little tolerance for working stupidly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, you hit on a great point, Brian, with, you know, the concept of employee experience. And it's really important to understand that employee experience only starts once you, of course, become an employee of, an organization or an agency, and it, and it really starts with candidate experience, um, largely throughout the history of uh, employment, both in the private and public sector. It's really been about coming somewhere and, and wanting to work at that place without any kind of attraction mechanism or any kind of way to truly get someone excited about working for an organization. And what we've seen over really the past five to 10 years is a big need for boosting candidate experience and employee experience. So that is attracting talent, um, both through an efficient and streamlined apply process, through effective communication channels, throughout the application screening process. And then once that individual becomes an employee, the experience only becomes more important and more critical, right? How do we keep that individual engaged in our organization? And how do we keep them wanting to come back into work every day, excited and wanting to give more? And I think that's a really important topic to hit on as, as we kind of segue into agency branding uh, as well. No, I, I think that's perfect because candidate experience, that's that's that first interaction. It's it's that first glimpse into things. To me, that's more, yeah, that's that's absolutely crucial that you're you're deploying an excellent brand. So you're recruiting that top talent. Um, are, are there other trends that you're seeing in the space? I know you you live and breathe in this space every day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, by no means do I want anyone to walk away from this conversation today and think that we have things fully figured out? Um, but we are starting to see trends of things that need to be prioritized more prominently within the public sector. And, and we're seeing it every day in the federal space on every article you see that comes out from Scoop News Group or FCW, you name the source, everyone's talking about, I feel like three major things. Candidate and employee experience that we just touched on really briefly is, is either not adequate or non-existent across several areas of government and is very has been very proven very successful within the private sector. So moving towards a more modern approach around candidate experience and employee experience is critical, both from a technology perspective and enabling the processes that we create to foster that experience. And then secondary, or I don't want to say secondary, but second to that would then be the concept of agency branding and recruitment marketing. We need to constantly 
be figuring out ways of how we can create and foster an employee brand that sells the mission of whatever government entity we're working for or that we're trying to get people excited about working at. Um, Tom, you might be able to speak well to this. My mom spent 30 years working for the Department of State in Washington, D.C. Um, when I was growing up, my parents every day almost told me, you want to go to college, you want to graduate, you want to get a job working for the government. And that was because of the great benefits, the job security, and all of these great things that still exist within the federal government today and largely across all of the public sector. Mm -hmm. However, what we've noticed is that the buck kind of stops there. That's really the only thing that a lot of agencies are selling these days. It's, hey, we have good benefits. So does Amazon. So does Google. Hey, we have job security. So does Amazon. So does well, Google. I, I would argue that the benefits in the private sector have absolutely superseded exactly. those in government because they, they look at it from, they've kept up with what the generational expectations are, whether it's, I mean, look no further, first of all, than remote work, which government hadn't really latched on to and embraced mm -hmm. completely until the pandemic hit. But uh, you look at Google, Amazon, just pick a technology yeah. company, even open text, remote work is just, it's just what you do. And yep. it's not a, it's not even considered a benefit. So why wouldn't this generation want a more, uh, a more, um, I guess a better work environment that fits their daily lives versus having to be sitting in a chair in an office, nine to five, fighting a commute, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's exactly why just branding and kind of selling those things as, as being an attractive part of working at your agency or, or your government entity is no longer enough because they have been surpassed by the Amazons and the Googles of the world and, and you know, pretty much any tech company, as you pointed out. But what's still really great about the federal government specifically is that they every agency has their own unique mission. And when you look at a lot of data today, and, and you know, Tom touched on this briefly at the beginning, what we see is almost the most important thing to every millennial and you know, Gen Z or Gen Xer, whatever we're talking about, is they want to feel that their work is meaningful. They want to come in every day and they want to feel like they're making a difference. Salary is important. Yes, all of those other factors that have always historically been important are still important, but they fundamentally want to feel like they're making an impact. And what better place to do that than the federal government or state and local government? Take, for example, what we're seeing within cyber talent across the federal government right now. If you're a cyber individual graduating from a college or university or maybe your first job out of college, what better place to want to go and work within Ooh. cyber than the U.S. federal government? I mean, yeah, Amazon and Google would be cool, but why not go to the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Defense or somewhere in the intelligence community to work on actual frontline cyber threats every single day? That's worthwhile to me. And that's what we need to brand and sell to this generation. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, the, the, the thing that they can really sell, because you touched on it, they can't really compete on salary. Um, and I mean, I, I know there's, there's policies in place to try to drive that and be more competitive, but it's difficult to recruit some of the top talent coming out of college with, with the salary that governments have, but it's the opportunity. I mean, think of the cool things that you can do working within the department of defense or working at defense or department of Homeland security, um, versus yeah. going in and just being a regular person sitting at a desk doing, um, remedial stuff until you work your way up, you can get tip of the spear pretty quickly. 
Yeah, I was 20. Uh, I, so I'm a former Navy guy, a, aviator pilot. I was 25 years old when they gave me the keys to an F-18 to fly on my own, a $25 million asset so that cool. they were entrusting to me. And then it's kind of like crazy to even think about that. Uh, and the, the idea that you will get an opportunity to do some amazing things in federal government and in the military, uh, much younger than you probably would in the civilian side. And you'll learn a lot about yourself and working with others. Uh, but there are also challenges around the bureaucracy, but I think that's changing as well um, in the in the role of innovation within the federal government is uh, changing dramatically. And it's just a lot more changes happening faster. And I, and you have things like, uh, like the pandemic that's even moving it even faster than that. Uh, but then comes with all that speed is coming all of the challenges as well. Um, so I, I would certainly recommend for anybody listening out there considering um, uh, a career or even a career start in the federal government. It's a good place to be. And I do think I agree with you, Chris, about first impressions being really important because the way I look at it is the first things that I'm seeing from anywhere that I'm thinking about, I'm looking for consistency, consistency of experience and uh, it's weird, but I actually see bumps. I can perceive bumps in experience because it's like, hey, this looked really good up front. And then something just happened. That handoff between this step and that step, it just felt awful. It felt like I drove off a curb. And that changes, you know, I spilled coffee on myself. And gosh, I'm going to have to go home and change my clothes now. But it's more of that from an end-to-end -end experience. And that's hard to do because you're really touching all parts of the organization. But the upfront piece, if you don't answer that mail correctly, you're not going to get, get that talent in the front door. So, Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And, and, and your, your you know, actual real-life scenario of, of working in the Navy is, is still applicable today, right? Um, mm -hmm. Today, what we see, right, is the Navy, the Army, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, what do we see as a 17 or 18 year old thinking about joining the military? We see the excitement of it, right? We see the, the, the TV ads on the cool career paths that you can get into or MOSs as they call them. And all the cool things that we can be doing and learning to, to grow as an individual, the buck doesn't stop you know, when you're 18, right? That, that remains the same throughout your career. Every place that you wanna go, you need to be able to brand why it's exciting to work there. So every agency, for example, should be asking themselves, why are we the place that you want to work for cyber, for example, mm -hmm. right? Why are we the place that you want to work for information technology is, I would say, the biggest series across government that we see this problem. But I think that's absolutely resonates well. And I think, you know, now what we're starting to talk about is a true paradigm shift in the way the public sector thinks about um, attracting and managing talent um, and, and how we fundamentally restructure and rethink about how we do that. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a good point because one of the common trends I've actually had as I've talked to some of the government leaders on the podcast is some of the private sector, public sector collaboration happening um, from a from a workforce perspective. So people leaving private sector to come to the public sector for um, a couple year, let's call it deployment, and then go back into the private sector. And it's great because you're infusing the, the public sector organization with um, uh, thought processes and ideas from the private sector. And then when you go back to the private sector, 
you have a better understanding of how the public sector works, how you can maybe make more influential changes within the public sector from your from your role outside of government. Um, and I think there's a huge value add there. But one of the challenges is how do you uh, affect the policies that necessitate um, some of these changes? So if I'm a, a vice president at a, a private sector organization and I want to come into an SES role and try to drive change within an agency and support it, sometimes there's policy that will really inhibit that. So what are some of the things you're seeing there, Chris, that that might drive some change there? Yeah, so I think, you know, when talking about change with, with everything that we're discussing today, it's really important to break it into to high level, two different kind of key tasks, right? The first is modernization of process. So when we talk about modernization of process, that's that true paradigm shift or, or change in the way of thinking that I talked about. And I think, you know, we're seeing the federal government, for example, do what you're mentioning now, which is bring in private sector ideas by way of employees that they're hiring within these specialized hiring authorities and teams to come in and say, give us a private sector perspective on what we need to be doing better to compete with the Amazons, Googles, open text of the world. How do we think differently to change what we've been doing for the last 150 years? I'll, I'll give you this example. And, and Brian, you and I mentioned, discussed this the other day. I'm a big fan of the movie Moneyball. And for anyone who's seen that movie, there is what I call an aha moment in the movie that I think resonates very well in, in most business uh, spaces. And that is the moment when Brad Pitt or Billy Bean, his character, gets pulled aside by one of his scouts and the scout says, you're doing everything wrong. We've been doing things a certain way for the last 150 years and we've been recruiting a certain way for baseball. And Brad Pitt stops him, he puts his hands in the air and he says, adapt or die. And I think that's like a true aha moment um, that we're seeing kind of directly in the public sector as well, which is not to say that the government is going to fail, but that there is a realization that is becoming and kind of growing within the public sector to see, hey, if we don't start adapting the way that we do things, we are going to continue to lose out on talent to the private sector. And that first piece is critical to that. How do we bring in talent from the private sector embed them in our process and get them get their ideas out on the table and start working in a different way than we have historically. Certainly not the last 150 years like Billy Bean scenario, but the last 50 or 60 years for sure. And then yeah. secondary secondary to that is how do we enable it? And the answer is technology. We leverage technology to enable the success of that new modernized process or processes. And we, we do that by adequately supporting them with technology that enables them to be successful. Changing the process is the first thing that needs to happen. But secondary to that is we need to start using commercially available technology and industry-leading technology to enable the success of those changes. Mm. No, I, I think that's a great point. And, and you touched on it. I mean, Tom and I talk all the time, especially when it comes to uh, the digital transformation of an organization, whether it's human capital management uh, line of business or IT or, or whatever functions you're facilitating, it, you can't just overlay technology onto a bad process. It starts with the culture. It starts with the process, but then technology acts as the, as the enabler. So that, that's why I'm glad you touched on the fact that those processes really need to be refined. Um, and that's where you're truly going to 
be able to drive change? Yeah, always process before technology, for sure. I, I think that's that's critical. And I think we're taking the right steps uh, within the public sector to, to get processes in place. And it starts with bringing fresh new ideas in from the private sector and, and what companies have seen as being successful. And it's not just about talent attraction. It's also about talent management, right? It's about how do we get these people to come over from Amazon and Google or choose us over Amazon or Google? But then from there, how do we get them to want to stay with us, right? How do we how do we increase talent mobility? How do we re and upskill our workforce? Again, to go back to the cyber example, um, there's just a huge cyber shortage currently within the, the federal government. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're trying to, they're not trying, they are thinking of new innovative ways to be competitive with things like salary, to be more mobile with their opportunities and to re and upskill the workforce. DHS is doing an exemplary job of this right now in terms of uh, the cybersecurity talent management system uh, process that's being ramped up and a lot of great things that they're trying to do to mobilize their talent and re and upskill their cyber workforce to ensure that, hey, Brian may only be on a, you know, uh, red threat team hacker. How do we get him on another team within another agency within DOD or DHS? And how do we share talent across the government? Because mm -hmm. the government has the unique scenario of if you lose a cyber person within DHS to the Department of Defense, that's not a true loss. That person is still providing exemplary or cutting edge services uh, in the cyberspace to the federal government. Whereas Amazon and Google have to directly compete with each other, right? They have to, but the government can share talent and be more successful as a result. I'm glad you touched on upskilling because that's another piece that we generally speak to especially as it pertains to the future of government work, because uh, when you uh, when you look at some of the technologies that are being brought on board um, to a government enterprise, artificial intelligence is one that sticks out to me, or even robotic process automation that really necessitates uh, a training or an evolution of the employee that's working alongside it, because the future of government work isn't about technology replacing workers. It's about refining how workers do their job and provide more value on, on behalf of the stakeholder, whether that's the, the, the citizen or the warfighter. So from an upskilling perspective, what trends are you seeing there as governments look to align to these, these new technologies and these new ways about going about accomplishing their mission? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it starts with visibility. Right. Internal visibility of opportunity is, is critical and, and, and kind of leaving the technology out of it at a, at a high level. Um, we need to have a way to easily make it transparent and visible to our talent. What we have at our fingertips for them to stay engaged as an employee. And, you know, that's skills management, right, from the AI perspective. Right. How do we easily match them with other opportunities based on a set of skills? that we've captured, right? So skills matching and skills management is critical. Having a holistic talent marketplace is critical. So having a one-stop shop location um, for our talent to be able to understand internally what other opportunities are available or even cross-governmentally, right? How do, we, how do we also bring in other opportunities within other component agencies within DHS or how does someone working in cyber at the Navy see opportunities also within um, the Army or, or Marine Corps without having to just go to USA Jobs and, and do a search, right? How do we make it visible 
the other opportunities that fit well for our talent? And then how do we also gauge their interest in gaining new skills and get them involved outside of a job on additional projects? Um, you know, a, a good example of that is when um, a unique cyber project pops up in the government, how do we pull in talent from four or five different locations to have them come in and work? I don't want to call it pro bono, but work this project purely just based on a desire to learn a new skill set and be more involved in cyber and kind of network to an extent as well. And so mm -hmm. I think those those key things are critical when we talk about things like talent mobility, um, skills matching, skills management and creating a talent marketplace where our talent can come at any point in time and know that they're going to have a place where opportunity is going to be presented to them in a clear and transparent manner. Yeah, that brings up the military. I know that it may be uh, subject to another conversation, but in the military, there's a lot of intra-service um, collaboration and transfers. So cross um cross-service uh gigs where you'd work for two years doing this and in the process of doing that and then taking that talent back to your home service really rich enriches um the overall force and builds relationship because at the end of the day it's all about relationship and network and as you mature in your career and become more senior that relationship is really uh, leveraged extensively um and so just a just kind of a parting thought there about that that commonality of being able to have that kind of cross. And I know it likely happens within uh, federal government agencies outside of DOD, but um, maybe accelerating that around key uh, key skill areas like cyber. You know, I, I, I really like the the concept around talent mobility, but also the, the talent marketplace. Um, and I, Tom, to your point, I think. Uh, the Department of Defense and, and specifically the military branches, um, to me, are kind of a best in class example of when it <laughs> comes to upskilling or uh, educating um, to be able to evolve their careers. Because uh, you might start in the military as one thing, but in, end in a completely different area of focus. And they'll they'll provide that education. It's I mean, look at Defense Acquisition University or within, yeah, D, within DoD so civilian career tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah like the, the yeah. contracting officers that sometimes they they'll make them go back to school to get certain certificates and, and train them because they want to make sure they have the best people in place there, um, which is incredibly crucial when you invest in your people you're investing in your organization and that's yeah. that's so important yeah in the military if you wanted an admiral today well you better have started that, that 25 years ago because that's, that's right take, so absolutely um the, the other aspect of this and you, you mentioned a talent marketplace is kind of defining what talent is right and um we we had mike sorelli on the podcast um the author of the talent war where he really talked about reframing how you go about recruiting top talent. Don't look at a resume and, and different check boxes, but what you should really be looking at is what are their intangibles? What is their ability to learn? What is their desire to be effective? That type of thing versus did they go to school for, for these number of years and have they have they done PowerPoint and Excel? And do they have those, those traditional things that were generally judged against? How do you see that type of paradigm being enveloped into the government? Do you, th you think that's possible in a, in a traditional sense where the, 
the longest time they have looked at education, they've looked at resume, and then how the, how you answer a questionnaire leading up to this. Yeah, and I think one thing that that you and Tom have, have hit on a few times already, and, and I want to give some some clout to as well because. Um, you know, I think the, the podcast you did with Mike, uh, the CEO of, of Overwatch was great. And I think Tom's touched on it a couple of times as well. Um, you know, th these are things that the military has been doing for a long time. They're, they're not new concepts to the federal government. They're just not widespread, right? They haven't really taken fire like they have in the private sector. And, and so I think it is very important that we continue to come back to, um, you know, taking a look at the way that the military does things, taking a look at the way that they view leadership and the way that they assess talent. Um, it's it's really critical because that is what has made the U.S. military, quite frankly, um, a dominant military in, in, for years. Right. It is um, we have one of the most, if not the most educated militaries in the world ever. And I, I think that's that's critical to hit on. And a lot of that is because of the way that they've, they've fundamentally done things. So I do want to touch on that really briefly before jumping over to your question, um, which I believe is, um, you know, the ability for, for this to be successful or this concept to take fire in the government. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's critical to understand that everything we're talking about here today is, is fully achievable. Um, one thing that I don't want to lose sight of ever is that the government does have hurdles um, in front of them no. from a policy <laughs> perspective that, 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 quite frankly, the private sector will never have. Um, they will not have the red tape of, of Title V hiring authorities. Um, but but what we're beginning and learning to see is that there are exceptions, right? There are non-Title V hiring authorities. There are ways and areas that we need to focus on to make to empower direct hiring authorities and these special hiring authorities for cyber talent to be able to Kind of adapt the way that we do things and over time those needs are going to change right so today if you're trying to hire an administrative assistant i'm, I'm not telling you that you need to go out and, and change the way that you've done things I, I still think there's room for it but what what i am you know i would say uh petitioning is that there are you know the, the talent marketplace as a whole is evolving and if the private sector and public sector does not evolve accordingly and as tom touched in the, the beginning yeah. the the problems of the you know the the values of the boomer generation the baby boomer generation of, of that work ethic is not the same as the millennials and the millennials values are not going to be the same as as brian you're and our, our children's generations right the it's, It'll be the COVID uh, kids, the kids. <laughs> exactly. But the key is, is how do we foster an environment that is prioritizing um, a modernized approach to things? And how do we continue to enable that with digital transformation that is flexible and adaptable from a technology perspective? To support those goals, it's almost because like a DevOps approach to culture or workforce or to life. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, and it's and it's iterative, right? It's not, you know, the way that we do things today should not be the way that we do things tomorrow, and and I think that's critical because I, I'm only, you know, kind of advising on what we're seeing today. As are you, Brian, and as are you, Tom. Tomorrow things are going to change, but we need to be ready for that change. And today we're we're not in a lot of ways. We've got legacy processes, we've got point processes, and just like that, we've got legacy technology, and we've got point mm -hmm. solutions. 
And that does not allow us to be adaptable and flexible. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of the reasons why when we look at digital transformation as a, as a paradigm, the idea is to, especially after the year that we've had, is to procure technology that's going to breed resilience within the enterprise. And that, that what resilience means now is how can I, how can I future-proof it? And, and yeah. I think the government is one of the key areas that has to ask that question because you don't know what the policy is going to be next year. You don't know the policy is going to be in five years or 10 years. It's going to evolve and you need some type of technology that's overlaid on top of an excellent process that can evolve with whatever that kind of fluid policy would be. And when you look at changing policy, I mean, this is perfect timing to have this episode. Um, as the Trump administration is sunsetting, one of the workforce issues that was uh, headlined today is the president wants performance metrics to be the rationale for government layoffs. So when layoffs happen, it's performance-based versus um, what legacy what what le or whatever legacy alignment they've had. So I think that's a changing uh, policy. It's definitely a different way of looking at the way the government um, looks at their workforce for sure. It's a more private sector approach to it. but it's it's not traditional and it's something that will need to be factored in to a process, to a policy because there's going to be much more scrutiny now placed on those performance metrics. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Brian, I, both your wife as well as mine, they're educators. And you, you touched on kind of the change in policy with the change in administration. I, one th I, we're, we're talking primarily about HR today. And one thing I want to make really clear is we're, we're kind of hitting on one specific area of the federal government that that is ripe for digital transformation. And that is, you know, HR. We're going to see it in education the next four years significantly. Um, you know, with the Biden administration coming in, we know that that Jill Biden, you know, being the first lady is going to have a lot of priorities around education and modernizing the way that we handle and look at education today across the country at every level, federal, state and local. And I think, you know, that's a, a great kind of platform to just truly understand that digital transformation is not just one area of government. It's not just one part of it. It is the need for the, the federal government to fundamentally adapt and change and evolve the way that we've, we've thought about things from a technology perspective for the last 30 plus years. No, I, I think that's a, a really great point that you touched on. It's, it's, we're, we're touching on government right now, but within all the public sector, especially education. Um, and honestly, you can, you can use the industry as a variable. I mean, the, these are common processes, and, and Tom and I talk about this all the time. There's so much commonality between some of the processes happening within government, within finance, within energy, within any sector, especially when it comes to human resources. Yeah. Um, and and when you can find that overlap, I think it's quick. It's you can quickly find a blueprint um, for for becoming a best in class organization in those common areas. Yeah. The degree of variance is huge within like the hire to retire. If you took hire to retire, which is relevant to federal, state and local government, if you look at that as a process, the degree of uh, variance between really super excellent systems or capabilities and really ones that are awful, uh, it's hugely broad. And you're thinking, why is that? Why is it so variant when in fact, 
we're all in this together. Why aren't we sharing more within government? Are we really maybe, you know, I don't think, usually I say governments uh, are really game for sharing, but maybe when it comes to talent, they're a little bit less uh, less likely to do that. I don't know. Uh, just thought there's a huge amount of variance. And I think over time, that's going to be getting smaller and smaller, meaning it's not going to be as hard to get to that leader position as it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I think the the way they look at not just talent outside of the organization, but the way they identify talent internally and try to um, yeah. raise them up into the into the ranks to really affect more change and scale out their value to the organization yeah. is definitely going to change. Yeah, um, in the military, when you did your uh, promotion board, they have promotion boards, you know. So basically, you know, the one or two levels above you will gather. And uh, they'll look at all of your different fitness reports, which is kind of like your performance report. And they used to have a picture. This is something that changed. They've removed the picture. Uh, and so you'd have to get this promotion picture and it was in your uniform and you know looking very consistent. And so uh, because people are getting different in how they look, they realize that, oh my gosh, that's not really a good thing. There were a lot of biases that they were turning up. It was just really interesting to see how in that case, the outside world is kind of affecting the military. Just all performance-based. Yeah, all performance, right. no, no more pictures. So unless you know the person, you wouldn't you wouldn't see a picture of them in their yeah. promotion review. This has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I, I really appreciate both you guys joining me. Um, Chris, I want to give you uh, an opportunity for some final thoughts before I turn it over to Tom. Yeah, well, Brian, again, thanks for having me, man. Um, I don't think we, I don't know if we touched on this, but Brian and I actually, you know, I, I kind of, worked with Brian for several years uh, early in my federal HR career. And, and it's a pleasure to, to reconnect with you um, on this topic or anything around technology. Um, I, I think my important takeaway today is, is number one, the public sector is still a great place to work, but we need to sell it. Um, and and I, I think it's important to understand and capture that, that talent attraction and talent management is, is, is a sales process. It is understanding people's needs. It is solutioning around those needs. And it is assessing how we keep those individuals engaged and working in a healthy and happy manner for our organization. And within the federal government specifically, that comes down to two things that we need to really prioritize over what I see as the next five to seven years. I touched on this earlier. Modernization of the federal recruitment and employment process is critical and fundamentally changing the way that we think about talent, both from an attraction and management perspective is, is critical to remain competitive, um, both with each other in the public sector, but then also with the private sector. And then secondary to that, digital transformation and technology enablement, to be able to leverage technology that enables the success of, of any new processes that come about. Because the processes that we get in place today and the ones that we're talking about on this podcast today um, are gonna evolve and need to be re-innovated, if you will, over time. And as a result, we need technology that can expand with that and grow with those processes. So I encourage everyone uh, to think on that and, you know, uh, really happy to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you guys today. It's been a pleasure. I, I know everything you just said, Tom could literally just say ditto too, but I'm still yeah. going to give him an opportunity to, to provide his own smart, final thoughts. Say, Chris has taken away all the smart talk here. So yeah. I'm just not, <laughs> not going to appreciate that, Chris. I uh, just want to say this is a, it's a journey. It's a process. It's all about relationship. Keep on this journey. Keep getting smart. Keep expanding your network um, and keep stretching the envelope, uh, but do it not alone, but do it in the company of others that share your perspective and share your objectives. But uh, Brian, you're awesome. Thanks, Chris. It's been great. No, I, Tom, I, I want to emphasize something you just said, and it's not the point that I'm awesome, but um, Tom, yeah. at, I feel at, free to if you need to. Yeah, yeah. At, at Open Text, Tom's done a really good job of something that I think 
we can kind of build on as as people looking to do business with the government is sometimes the message can't come from us. Sometimes the message needs to come from yeah, other government partners. And, and brokering those conversations is absolutely a role we can play. I know um, Tom's done a really good job of that. We've, we've been working with global governments. Um, it, I mean, connecting folks in Europe with folks in Canada. Um, we've, we've connected people within the continental US yeah. at, at the CIO level um, and anything in between. So I think remember what the message is and then think through how it's going to be delivered the most effectively. And it's, sometimes we can't be that mouthpiece. It has to yeah. be somebody else. Um, so so I just wanted to emphasize that. Thank you both guys for uh, for joining today. I really appreciate it. This has been a fun, fun conversation. Well yeah, done. Thanks so much, care. gentlemen. Cheers. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show, including the one we referenced with Mike Sorelli, the CEO of EF Overwatch and the author of The Talent War by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and also Amazon Music. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Have a great holiday, guys. Stay safe. Bye for now.